I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 6. This morning we're going to look at the last two chapters of Micah, Micah 6 and 7. Before we examine God's Word, would you join me in a word of prayer together? Oh great God, this is Your Word that You have given to us. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news that is in these words. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit. That we might not just read Your Word, but understand Your Word. Give us that, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Who would you compare God to? It's an interesting question for us to think through this morning. Historically, some have compared God to a great clockwinder. He created the world, He wound it up, and now He sits in His cosmic lounge chair and watches the events of the world unfold, disconnected and emotionally detached. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you would compare God to someone like Santa Claus. He's a nice thought, but he's not real. He's just an idea that helps people cope with life's problems. Maybe you would think of God as a genie in a bottle. He can be manipulated. He stays off to the side. He gives you what you want if you ask for it properly. Maybe you've come from a strict religious background and God is compared to a cruel, angry judge who is just standing there waiting to throw the book at you when you do something wrong. Maybe you might compare God to a neglectful or abusive father who says He loves you, but His actions tell you a much different story. Maybe you would compare God to the other side of the coin. Maybe you compare God to a loving, grandfatherly type who spoils you and gives you everything you want, but He never holds you accountable for anything or disciplines you. He's just a nice guy. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Micah provides a crystal clear picture of who God is. He isn't distant. He isn't just an idea of the mind. Micah shows us that God isn't comparable to anyone else. He's just, and therefore He must judge His people for their wickedness. He's relational. Therefore, He doesn't want extravagant one-time sacrifices. He wants us. Micah shows us that God is merciful. And therefore, while He must judge His people for their wickedness, that's not the final taste we're left with in Micah. As we look at Micah 6 and 7, the main idea that I want us to see in the text this morning is this. The Lord delights in showing mercy to His people even when they deserve judgment. The Lord delights in showing mercy to His people even when they deserve judgment. Three points that we'll see as we walk through our text this morning. I want us to consider first off the indictment of Israel. The indictment of Israel. We see this in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6 gives us the indictment against Israel. Micah chapter 6, follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. 
Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. That you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Here in chapter 6, we see the indictment of Israel, and there's three parts in this indictment. In verses 1 to 5, we see the formal indictment. There is a formalness to what we see in verses 1 to 5. God indicts his people. And it's important for us to understand that God's complaint against His people happens in the context of the covenant that God made with His people when He brought them out of Egypt. This isn't just something that has come up suddenly. There's a long history, a covenant history that God has with His people. A covenant is a promise in which God binds Himself to a person or people and they bind themselves to Him. In view here specifically is the covenant God made with His people. Namely, that He would be their God and protect and provide for them forever. In return, God expected His people to follow Him and keep His statutes. God provides a blessing provision that they would grow as a nation. They would become prosperous as a nation. And a curse provision. That if they did not follow God, if they did not keep His covenant, that their nation would perish and that God would judge them. Israel agreed to this covenant that God set with His people. And both Israel and God are bound to this covenant. This is crucial for us to get as we read through verses 1-5, through as we study them. Verses 1-2 to point us to a complaint that God has with His people. 
The complaint from God is brought, as it were, before the mountains. These oldest and most established foundations of the world. The mountains have been there for a long time. They've seen a lot. And so God is calling them to be witnesses. The complaint or contention that God has with His people is in verse 3. God has heard, it's gotten back to Him, that His people are offended at Him. They are, he has become wearisome to them. And He asks in verse 3, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. Or tell me. Don't keep it hidden anymore. Let's bring it out in the open. Bring it out in in the presence of these mountains and foundations and let's see if your complaints against me have any water to them. Have any substance to them. God is not upset and confused for no reason. He has every right to be upset at His people. They have willfully broken their covenant with Him. Do they have a right to be upset with God? Verses 3-5 through detail how God has upheld His end of the covenant. Verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In verse 5, he calls to mind their remembrance what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. The purpose of, of those two extremes is we see from the exodus in Egypt to the doorstep of the promised land in Gilgal, God has brought them up. He's redeemed them. He's given them good leaders. He's caused the Israelites to prosper in spite of enemies who wanted to curse them. God's held up His end of the covenant. The people of Israel don't have a valid reason to complain against God, but He has a valid contention with them. And it manifests itself, His indictment against the people, in verses 6-8. through We see the indictment manifested. Verses 1-5 through show us God's great track record. His valid complaint against His people. And these verses, verses 6-8, through provide the evidence that what the Lord is alleging against His people is accurate. These verses seek to answer the question, what does the Lord want? There's three couplets of questions that build on the premise to the answer of the question that is, well, God just wants a big sacrifice. Look at the progression that we see in verse 6. The initial question is asked, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Option number one, shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Is that what God wants? That's maybe on the small side. Well, okay, let's let's mega-size it. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Wow, that escalated quickly. We went from burnt offerings, calves a year old, to thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. That's an enormous sacrifice. Is that what God wants? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Does God want human sacrifice? 
These all point to a pagan, deficient understanding of God. The people of Israel are missing the point when they come to worship God. God doesn't want their offerings. God doesn't even want the biggest offering they could ever bring. The tragedy of these verses is that they testify that the people have neglected the covenant God made with them. They've turned God's covenant with them into a contract instead of a covenant. What's the bare minimum I have to do to make sure I get what I want? All right, cool, I've done it, and you're going to give me what I need. Verse 8 shows us two things. This is not an ignorant thing the people of Israel are doing. Look at the beginning of verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. In other words, the people of Israel know what God wants. They know that verses 6 and 7 are not what God wants. The second thing verse 8 shows us is that God doesn't want a one-time sacrifice or experience. He wants an ongoing relationship. We see that at the end of verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justly. That's a continuing thing. You don't just do justly once. You are doing justly every day. And you'll continue doing justly every day in perpetuity. You won't just love mercy once, but there will be a pattern, a perpetuousness in your loving mercy. But then that last piece, to walk humbly with your God. To live day in and day out every day with your God. In other words, God doesn't want all of the stuff the people would offer them. He wants all of them. He doesn't want the stuff. He wants them. So we see the indictment manifested. Verses 9-16 to then give us the sentence from the indictment. God's people must be punished for breaking the covenant. Verses 9-12, through God lists some of the offenses His people are guilty of. And they all relate to financial corruption. Look at verse 10. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? The short measure that is an abomination? That is, they were tampering with the economic pay system. That you wouldn't pay $20 for something that cost $20. You would pay more for it. They were corrupt. He continues in verse 11, Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales? There's an imbalance with the bag of deceitful weights. There's financial corruption. They're taking advantage of one another. Not only that, but verse 12 paints almost like a, like a mafia picture. That it's not that there's just financial corruption, but there's violence to maintain the corruption. For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So, we come to verses 13 through 15. Therefore, in light of your corruption, in light of the valid contention that the Lord has against his people, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. Look at the, the tragic irony of verses 14 and 15. You will eat but you won't be satisfied. You may carry some away. 
The idea there is you may rescue some people from the city. As, as judgment comes, you might grab some people to take with you. You might grab your loved ones, your little ones, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You will sow. That's great. But not reap. You're going to plant the seed, but you won't be around for when the harvest comes. You're going to tread the olives, but you're not going to anoint yourselves with oil. That royal ability to to put the next king forth by anointing his head with oil, you're not going to be around for that. And make sweet wine, but not drink the wine. Why is all of this judgment happening? Verse 16, the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. Omri and Ahab are 1 and 1A of the worst kings from the kingdom of Israel. That's the northern tribe. Remember, Micah is prophesying to Judah, the southern tribe. Israel's already out of the picture. They've already been exiled. Omri and Ahab are 1 and 1A of the worst, most corrupt, most vile, most wicked kings in Israel's history. And God's indictment on His people here is you, you're walking in their counsels. You're thinking like they're thinking. You're acting like they're acting. You're doing the things that would make them proud. So He's going to make them a desolation. And your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of My people. These verses remind us that sin brings painful consequences in this life. God is just and must judge sin. But His judgment on our sin is not unloving. We often assume that God's judgment on our sin is unloving. Contrary to what we believe, it is the most loving thing He can do for His children is to discipline us, to correct us. Listen to these words from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom He delights. On this Father's Day, fathers, you can relate to what God is saying in Proverbs 3. There are times when you have to discipline or correct your kids. And you don't get delight in that doesn't bring you joy and happiness, but that's the most loving thing that you can do for them is to take care of that thing that they have done that needs to be addressed. God loves us in bringing judgment on us. And He does that with His people Israel. So we see the indictment of Israel in chapter 6. But notice secondly, the lament for Israel in chapter 7. The lament for Israel. We see this in Micah 7, in the first seven verses. The lament for Israel. Follow along as I begin reading in Micah 7, beginning at verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. 
and the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In these seven verses, we see the lament for Israel. In verse 1, Micah compares himself to someone seeking to find tasty grapes, but he arrives at the field to find there's nothing except old, sour, puny grapes. Who wants raisins when you're looking for grapes? There aren't any of the first ripe fruits left for him. He's empty. He's looking for others like him that are seeking to do justly and to walk in mercy and to follow God. And it is slim pickings. He's left with this turmoil and dissatisfaction of what's happening around him as he observes what's taking place in Judah. Why does does he feel empty? Why does he feel dissatisfied? We look at verses 2-4, through and those verses illustrate why Micah feels the way that he does. There's no faithfulness. There's no loyalty. There's no righteousness in man left on the earth. There's no one who's following God. The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. Everywhere he looks, Micah sees corruption, evil, and violence. And as Micah observes the perverseness of the wicked, he also sees their punishment coming. Both the evil of the nation and its coming judgment are cause for Micah to lament, to be sorrowful. In verses 5 and 6, we see the pervasiveness of this wickedness. This is not just something that's happening in the halls of power or in the church, in the synagogue. Wickedness has invaded the local and familial relationships of the nation. Don't trust in a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom or lies next to you. Look at the closeness of verse 6. Son dishonors father. Daughter-in-law rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It's summarized in that last phrase there. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Wow. Things are in bad shape. What is Micah going to do? What's Micah's response to these things? I mean, he feels sorrowful. What's he going to do? Verse 7 gives us that answer. The actions in verse 7 are probably not what our actions would be. What are Micah's actions? Well, he says that he will look to the Lord and wait for the God of his salvation. Why would he do that? Isn't God the one who's instigating the judgment on his people? 
Isn't God the one who put the people of Israel in a position to fail? So why is Micah looking to the Lord? There's nowhere else for him to look. Who else can he look to? He knows God well enough. His understanding of God is not pagan and deficient like the rest of the nation of Israel. He realizes what we read this morning in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Micah knows that though judgment is deserved, God will have mercy on His people. And so that causes him, in the midst of his lament of what's taking place around him, to say, Lord, I'm going to look to You. I'm going to wait for You. You are the God who will hear me and who will save me. Where do you turn when you sin? Do you turn to someone else? Do you turn to a friend or a ritual? Oh, brother and sister in Christ, when we sin, 1 John 2 tells us that we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Run to Him. When you sin, run to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation. You don't have this hope that Micah has. You have nothing to stand between you and the wrath of God. Friend, you need to trust in Christ this morning. There is nothing to keep you from experiencing the judgment of God for your sin. So can I encourage you this morning, turn to Christ. Repent of your sin. Trust in Him for salvation today. Though Micah laments for Israel. He knows that God will eventually restore Israel. And we see Israel's restoration by God as our third and final point this morning. Israel's restoration by God. This is in chapter 7, verses 8-20. through Israel's restoration by God. Follow along as we read beginning at Micah chapter 7, verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. As in days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. 
They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. In verses 8 through 10, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, Zion is personified. She speaks of her pending judgment and hope. She cautions her enemy not to rejoice over her. Notice verses 8 and 10 refer back to this enemy. Verse 8, don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Because the enemy is going to see something in verse 10. Then she who is my enemy will see. So don't rejoice because there's coming a time when your rejoicing will be replaced by shame. You once mocked Me. You once said, where is the Lord your God? I thought you said that He was always going to protect you and take care of you. Go do what I told you to do because you're My slave now. (laughs) Don't rejoice over Me, My enemy. Why? Verse 8, when I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Notice in verse 9, this sentiment is repeated again. He will bring me forth to the light. I was in darkness. I come to the light. What happens? Immediately after that in verse 9, I will see His righteousness. Verse 10, Zion is then able to see her enemy being judged. So, we see hope in these verses. There's a fixed hope on God. Even though Zion has sinned against God and will bear the Lord's indignation, the Lord will bring Zion forth to the light. Justice is handed out. It's not just handed out to God's people in judging them. It's handed out to... Zion's enemies. Though she rejoiced and ridiculed in Zion and its pain, the enemies will be abolished. There's two things that that we ought to see in these three verses here in verses 8-10. through Sin necessitates punishment. It can't go unpunished. It's not enough for God to brush your sin under the cosmic rug. He must execute justice. Though this prophecy is immediately fulfilled in God's deliverance of His people, it's also fulfilled in Christ's coming and death. But we are waiting. We are looking for the time when the Lord returns and vindicates all of His people once and for all at His second coming. These verses point us to that hope in the future. As we consider verses 11-13, to there seems to be an interesting shift in topic. We go from talking about uh, Zion's enemies being ridiculed to in the day when your walls are to be built. This is speaking, verses 11-13 to are speaking of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is returned to prominence. 
There's three actions that we see in verses 11 to 13 that speak to Israel's restored prominence. First, the walls will be built. It's kind of hard to have a prominent city if you don't have a walled city. So the walls will be rebuilt. Second action, the decree shall go far and wide. Or uh, some of your translations may say the boundary shall go far and wide. In In other words, the expanse of the city is not going to be limited. Third action, they, the nations, shall come to you from the whole region. These verses point us back to what we saw last week in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Namely, that Zion will be restored to the preeminent place where nations will go. Remember last week, they will flow to it. It's where they're going to go to learn about God and His ways. Things are great in Jerusalem, we read there in verses 11 and 12, but not so in verse 13. The land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Those who are not in Jerusalem, those who are not God's people will experience desolation. They will reap the fruit of their deeds. So verses 14-17 through then are Micah's call for God to shepherd His people. He will! They are His heritage. And what does He provide to them in verse 14? He provides secure protection. The flock dwells solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. In a protected place. Not in a vulnerable place. Not in a compromised place. But in a secure, protected place. God's people also experience luxurious provision. That's also there in verse 14. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead. In other words, the Lord is a good shepherd. The people who follow Him shall not want. He makes them to lie down in green pastures. He restores their soul. He leads them beside cool waters. Sound familiar? God is a good shepherd. And He will shepherd His people well. But notice though that they are still His people. Verse 14, shepherd your people. At no point in this process does God distance Himself from His people. They never become those people. Look back with me at this because I think this is really important for us to see. Look back to chapter 6, verse 3. How does he refer to the people of Israel when he's indicting them? He says, Oh, my people. You look in verse 5 of chapter 6. Oh, my people. Look again at verse 16 in chapter 6. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. And then we see here in chapter 7, verse 14, shepherd your people. God never disowns his people. He never estranges His people. He never says, I just need a break from you people because you have pushed me this far. They remain His people. God has a history of faithfully shepherding His people. And we see that in verse 15. As in the days of old, 
As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. This is the second time in these two chapters that we see a reference to the Exodus. God has a history of faithfully shepherding His people. He shepherded them out of Egypt. He shepherded them across the Red Sea. He shepherded them into the Promised Land. He shepherded them in spite of all the knucklehead judges that they had. He's shepherded them through all of the rebellious kings that they've had. And He will continue to shepherd them for eternity. God's provision also entails... His humiliation and destruction of the nations who rejected God. We see that in verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They'll put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They're embarrassed in verse 17. They'll lick the dust like a serpent. They'll crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They'll be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Again, this prophecy has an immediate application to Israel in Micah's day. We see echoes of this though picked up in Christ and His death on the cross. He puts death to open shame, much like is prophesied here. The world cowers in fear at the name of Jesus. Those who have demon infestation when Jesus is on this earth, the demons cower in fear. They, they tremble at His voice. But again, these verses point us forward to a time when God will return in terror and strike fear in the nations who have rejected God and openly humiliate them for how they have treated His people. God will set things right. So that leaves us with verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 through 20 are the character of God that motivates him to restoration. Why would God restore his people? Why would he take this messed up group of people who are corrupt to the core pervasively through and through? Why would he take them and restore them? Well, because God can't be compared to anyone else. These people have sinned. They've broken their covenant with God. There's a connection here in this text between hope and worship. The future realities that we see in verses 8-17 to that God will deliver and restore His people cause Micah to burst out in worship in verses 18-20. through And he notes, he gives us these seven things about God that are worthy of our consideration and adoration. What is God like? What does He do that sets Him apart from anyone or anything or any other deity that people might try to construct in their mind? First, He pardons iniquity. He doesn't just look the other way. He deals with it. Secondly, He passes over transgressions. This has notes going back to the Exodus when the angel of death passes over those that have the blood upon the doorposts. He passes over transgression. Third, He doesn't retain His anger forever. There are some people that once they get angry, they tend to stay angry for a long period of time. And it's hard for them to diffuse that anger. Not so with God. He does not retain His anger forever. The centerpiece is this fourth aspect of God and what He is like. He delights in mercy. 
or steadfast love. He delights in mercy. That's the thing that He enjoys showing most. Fifth thing that we see in these verses is that He will again show compassion to His people. His ability to show compassion doesn't wear out. There's never going to come a time when He needs to show compassion and God will say, whoops, I've used up the last of that. There's no supply shortage on God's compassion. Sixth, He will subdue our iniquities. He'll conquer them. He'll deal with them once and for all. Seventh, He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. They won't be readily accessible. He's not going to go and easily pull them from where He's stashed them. No, He's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. Think of the vast ground God covers in verses 18 and 19. He deals with the sins of His people from a legal side and from a relational side. What motivates Him to deal with things from a legal side and relational side? Well, He delights in showing mercy. Verse 20 is the cherry on top. Look at verse 20 with me. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God reiterates the fact that He will stay true to the covenant that He's made to His people. He'll be faithful to continue fulfilling His covenant responsibilities to Israel that He made to Jacob and Abraham. This is good news for us. Remember that God promised to Abraham that through him, every nation of the earth would be blessed. Friends, this is all grace. God's people don't deserve an ounce of what God is going to give them. Brothers and sisters, neither do we. We have broken God's law just like the Israelites did. We've thumbed our nose at God's demands and rules. Yet, He delights to show steadfast love to those who turn to Him in repentance. This afternoon, I would encourage you to read Psalm 34 and Psalm 145. Those are two psalms that just distill and meditate and reflect on this truth. He delights to show steadfast love to those who will turn to Him in repentance. I hope this afternoon you'll take some time and read Psalm 34 and Psalm 145. As we wrap up though, what does Micah 6 and 7 mean for us? What are truths that we can take from Micah 6 and 7 and apply to going to work tomorrow or dealing with situations that we're involved in right now? Sin is serious in God's sight. Is your sin serious to you? Do you tend to excuse or minimize lightweight sins as being insignificant? Micah 6 shows us that all sin is serious in God's eyes. It's serious enough to judge. It's serious enough that we as Christians need to repent of it and confess it to God. Brother and sister in Christ, confess your sins to God knowing that He forgives. He's waiting to forgive. 
He wants you to confess your sins so that He can forgive your sins. Friend, if you aren't saved, your sin is terminally serious. If you don't repent of your sin and turn to Christ, you risk eternal punishment and judgment if you die. Will you be saved from your sin today? Let me encourage you. Talk with me afterwards. Talk to someone around you. Talk to the person that you came with. You need to deal with this this morning. God's Word offers you hope and salvation. You can't walk out of here with your sin. You need God to deal with it and pardon it. Saint, how much does your walk with God mimic Micah 6.8? When you trusted in Christ for salvation, did you view it like a a one-time thing that kind of served to keep you from going to hell? Or do you view salvation as an ongoing relationship with God? Salvation isn't just about praying a prayer or doing something once for God. Salvation is an ongoing relationship between you and God. Our lives ought to be characterized by doing justly, by loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. Does Micah 6.8 characterize your way of life? Third, do you lament the wickedness that you see around you? As you see the perversity of sin and its effects on your family, you see it in the church, you see it in our nation, does it drive you to lament to God? Do you express sorrow to God for the sin that you see around you? And in you. Ultimately, does the evil in our day cause you to look up or down? Do you look to the Lord or do you look to something else? Older saints, I want to encourage you as you wrestle with the changes taking place in the world, don't fall into the trap of becoming cynical. Look to Christ. Parents, when you have to have difficult discussions with your kids because of what they've been taught in school or watched on their device, don't shake your head in frustration at our culture. Look to Christ. Christians, when, when we're tempted toward disgust or self-righteousness, when you see evil or injustice, look to Christ and lament the evil. But hope in the return of Christ. Look to that glorious day when Christ will return and He will set everything in order. Brother and sister, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? Micah would want you to think about God's mercy. He delights in steadfast love. Micah would want you to have a view of God in your mind that's informed by His wrath and His judgment and His justice. Yes, absolutely! But he would also want that view of God to be informed by God's great mercy and His kindness and His compassion and His love that He shows His people. I want to close by reading Psalm 130. Let Psalm 130 comfort and challenge you this morning as we close. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I have cried to You, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I do hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, O church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You that though You are just, and though You judge sin, and sin is serious with You, that You are also merciful and gracious. That You do not retain Your anger forever, but You pardon iniquities. You pass over transgressions. You delight in mercy. Oh Lord, help us to have that view of You. May it motivate us to take our sins seriously. May it motivate us to love You and not just be content with doing things for You, but walking with You to developing and intensifying our relationship with You. Thank You that You want to have a relationship with us. That You've provided the way for us to have a relationship with You through Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in His name. Amen.